Lord, we pray that. We pray it in song. We pray it with all of our heart that you would fill our eyes, that your glory would fill our eyes, that you would be our vision, that our trust, our hope, our faith would be in you. We've expressed that today as a singing church. And we praise you for the redemption that Christ has won to permit us to sing songs of the new life. We pray for those who have not that life and pray in their behalf that you would open their eyes and for all that we would feed upon your word today. Meet with us here and through the teaching of the Spirit of God, help us to understand your truth and to cling to it with hope and with joy. Through Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Peter could hear the heavy breathing of death behind him. Death would soon sink its icy claws into his back and screech its hideous conquest of yet another body. Now Peter was not ill, rather he felt the walls of persecution closing in around him. Opponents of the gospel he preached would soon silence his voice and still his pen. But Peter was not troubled by the prospect of death. In chapter 3 and verse 13, he bubbles with keen anticipation of life in the new heavens and the new earth, ruled not by the forces of darkness that were after him, but ruled by righteousness. But what does concern Peter is the spiritual readiness of his readers to enter that realm. They will stand before God when the earth and the works that are done on it are judged. Chapter 3 and verse 10. And there were false teachers now that had arisen who questioned Christ's return. They questioned, they rejected, in fact, the notion of final accountability before God's throne, according to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So that's where Peter is, as death stalks him. His days are winding down, and he writes to bolster the faith of his readers. He begins this final letter to them with a plea for holiness. How you live matters. It matters eternally. He stresses this, having provided a list of Christian virtues we see here in 2 Peter chapter 1. He discusses their importance in verses 5 through 9. And then he, he concludes in verse 10, Therefore, brothers, therefore, family of God, be all the more diligent to conform your calling, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't misread him. He's not saying earn your salvation by good works. But prove your salvation. Work out your salvation by evidencing such qualities. Now, they were genuine followers of Christ. And so, none of this was anything new to them. Verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right 
though as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Gifted musicians continue to practice scales, and gifted athletes continue to work on the fundamentals of their sport. And in like manner, the followers of Christ must always be reminded to practice holiness. How you live matters eternally. But wait a minute, Peter. What do you, what do you mean by as long as I'm in the body? Verse 14. See it here again. Verse 14. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He doesn't explain how Christ made this clear to him. could be connected to John 21. We're not told that. But in any event, these words yield what one commentator calls a deathbed earnestness to the letter. A deathbed earnestness. So verse 15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. He's writing them down. He's reminding them of what they know. I'm going to be gone. How will you live? Will you hold to the faith? I'm working with earnestness to make sure you do. In that vein... We're going to narrow in now in verses 16 to 21, which encapsulate the reliability and the authenticity of the Christian faith. The bedrock on which our faith stands we find in these several verses. First of all, our faith is built on the historical witness of the apostles. At verse 16, he makes the assertion, we do not follow myths, we heed eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter earnestly desires his readers to stand true to the Christian faith after his death verse 15, and so he stresses the bedrock authenticity and trustworthiness of that faith. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. That's not what's going on here in the Christian faith. Now Peter's opponents insist that he and his fellow apostles invented certain myths about Jesus' life, who he was, what he did, what took place. Everybody follows myths, they said. You're no different than the rest of us, Peter. Come on, that's what religion is. We follow myths. These fictional invented stories that uh, we don't believe they actually happened any more than we believe that Santa Claus descends through a chimney. These myths, not historical reality. But they are important to teach us moral lessons. That's how a myth functions. And that's what you're doing, Peter, when you tell stories about Jesus. Just myths. The world's not gotten any better. We're right here today within Christendom. 
There are liberal scholars that call themselves Christians who say these very things. You can read their books, their articles. They insist Israel did not actually cross the Red Sea. I mean, come on. A great fish did not really swallow Jonah. Jesus did not literally heal the sick, create food, walk on water, and raise the dead. And Jesus certainly did not rise from the dead himself on cue. These are just myths. But listen, Christian, they say. Listen, listen. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if these things literally happen. It doesn't matter if they're historical truth. They're meant to paint a larger picture that God is for you, that in difficult times, good things can happen because God loves you. And they take the Bible and they read the words of the Bible and they convince people in this way even when people sometimes don't even know what they're talking about. Just myths. There are churches in this city that hold that belief. Oh, Peter, what do you think? What do you have to say? I think Peter steps forward at this place and says, with all earnestness, listen to me. Listen to me. What I preached about our Lord Jesus Christ was no myth. And the powerful coming of our Lord is no myth. You will meet Christ. He will come again. I know this because we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Eyewitnesses, those who report historical, objective, verifiable facts. Now obviously there can be false eyewitnesses. But Peter and the apostles insisted on the integrity of the Christian faith, on the importance of truthfulness, that Jesus was himself the personification of truth. And as eyewitnesses, they are reporting historical, objective, verifiable facts. Christianity is not founded on voices in your head. It does not rest on warm religious feelings, intuitions, and spiritual impressions. That's not the bedrock. Our faith is grounded in the historical person and finished work of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Peter supports this assertion with appeal to a historical event, and that's significant in the text, namely the transfiguration of Jesus, which we've read together today here in Matthew chapter 17. And so we see his assertion and now his support. The apostles saw the transfigured Christ. They heard the Father's affirmation of Jesus at that event. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice. Let's think on verse 17 for a bit. When he, Jesus, received honor and glory, 
The honor that he received in that event was the Father's certification of Jesus as the eternal beloved Son of God. The glory was the splendor that shone from his body in that moment of transfiguration, showing the life beyond the grave, showing life in glorification for this one moment that came to be on that mountain for the disciples to see. So he received honor and he received glory, physical splendor indeed, as the Father spoke of him as the beloved Son, the Son in whom I am well pleased, the only begotten eternal Son of God. Jesus is Messiah, the voice of God says. He is the Lamb of God sent to bear the sins of his people, to defeat death and crush Satan's head. Now Peter says and leans in here with his pen, People, hear me. Hear me, verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. We were with him on that holy mountain. I was there. I heard the voice of God authenticate the person and work of Jesus, and I saw Jesus' otherworldly splendor. The net effect is we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Verse 19, we have this prophetic word now more fully confirmed by this transfiguration. That, that phrase could mean, in fact it's possible that you have a translation that leans that way. This could mean that God's revealed word is even more certain than Peter's eyewitness report of Christ's transfiguration. And we'd say on, on one level that's certainly true. But the context does not support that interpretation. It's a fine interpretation because it's saying trust Scripture above all. But that's, that's not what Peter's up to here. What he's saying is that all the prophetic word that pointed to Christ was confirmed on that mountain as we saw him in all his glory. So Peter is not, there's nothing contextually that he is downgrading the value of his eyewitness report compared to Scripture. What he's saying is the truth about Jesus is doubly established. It's established by the prophets who pointed to him and identified him as Messiah and all the prophecies fulfilled to say that is who he is and we saw him in that glory. And we heard the voice of the Father affirming that that's who he is. So our faith is built on the historical witness of the apostles. That's the ground under our feet. But secondly, our faith is built on the authoritative revelation of Scripture. As verse 19 continues, we find here, first of all, under that head, that we must pay attention to Scripture until we meet Jesus. This is the foundation under our feet. Let's work this out at verse 19. We have the prophetic word made fully, more fully confirmed by the transfiguration. But to that word now he centers, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What's he talking about there? You will do well to pay attention to this thing as a lamp shining in a dark place. That is the word of God, the prophetic word, the holy scriptures, which we know is the Bible. To pay attention means that you will do well to read the Bible. You will do well 
to memorize it. You will do well to study it and to obey it. This book is, in fact, a lamp shining in a dark place. You with me? I think the world's a dark place in a lot of ways. And it just seems like the older I get and the more you find out about what's going on, it just seems to get darker and darker. So you look behind the scenes and you see what is motivating people in this day. It's a dark place. That speaks of its disconnect with truth. It's a world of lies. It is a world of moral degeneracy. It is a world of spiritual confusion. The Bible serves as a torch in a cave. As a flashlight in the woods on a rainy night. This Word teaches us. It shows us the truth. It shows us that light. The Word teaches us, for instance, not to put our hope in man, in political parties, in money, in health, or in fame. This Word teaches us our true identity, sexually, socially, and spiritually. It guides us along paths of righteousness. It leads us to quiet waters where our souls can find true rest. This is the light shining in the darkness that we hold to. God's written Word illumines the world's cave-like darkness. So we must actively trust it to illumine the path. This is the foundation under your feet. Verse 19 concludes, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's a strange phrase. But I think understanding it contextually, it's a beautiful phrase. It's a reference to the day of the Lord and to the return of Christ. We are looking to the dawn. It's a dark world, but we are looking to the day when the sun begins to rise, when the day dawns, Christ will come. That's a theme, won't, I won't be able to support that just here, but through the entire book, a significant theme. This day is the culmination of the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the reign, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in a day of our glorification, which I think then is the meaning of when the morning star rises in your hearts. You're looking to the day, the dawn that comes in the darkness, but then the morning star that rises in your heart is not your innate goodness, but is the glorification that the believer will enter into when we see Christ. It will be as the morning star rising in our hearts. I don't know what that's going to feel like. I don't know how that's going to happen. But I'm ready. I can't wait. When we meet Christ, the Bible teaches that when we meet Christ, the illumination we now find in Scripture will give way to the brilliance of Christ Himself. And it will transform us we will see him and become like him we'll be sucked into the light in a sense he will return we will be glorified and we will shine with his glory so today we seek the illuminating light of God's written word until that glorious day when the night will be gone 
and when we will love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for the first time and forever. So, now, hold out the torch. As the light is coming, shine upon your life the Word of God. We must pay attention to Scripture until we meet Jesus. We're in no way, shape, or, or, or form prepared otherwise. Secondly, he says we must appreciate then that Scripture is produced by the Holy Spirit. This light to our path we must understand to be the product of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. There's a couple of complications here to verse 20. Let's work through them. The first is the word prophecy. We tend to hear the word prophecy and think very immediately about foretelling the future because we speak often of the prophecies concerning Christ and how those prophecies came true, those predictions were true. And so that's a very important aspect of prophecy. But that's like the small circle in the larger circle of what the Scripture means when it speaks of prophecy. Prophecy is the speaking of God's truth, the declaration of God's revealed truth. Sometimes that's about the future, but far more often it's not. Far more often it's just the declared Word of God. That's what he means here by prophecy. So don't limit it to what's coming, but look at it as what God has revealed to His people about His mind, His will, His purposes. So not telling us what will happen, but revealing who God is, the nature of His promises, and what He commands us to do. That's point one, prophecy, thinking Scripture, indeed, is what he's speaking of here in verse 20. As he, says, as he speaks of that very word, no prophecy of Scripture. Scripture is God's revealed truth in written text. There's revelation that includes other aspects, but Scripture is the written text of God's Word. We're talking here words, we're talking sentences, paragraphs, and biblical books. So, no prophecy of the written text of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. There's another problem in verse 20. Let's untie the knot for a moment. Comes from someone's own interpretation. The Roman Catholic Church has taken this to mean this. No one is able to interpret the Bible apart from the authoritative help of the church or the magisterium. You need the church to help you interpret the Scriptures because no Scripture is one's private interpretation. Those days are past, I think, mostly, thankfully, in this nation. But there was a time in my childhood when my Roman Catholic friends could cite examples where their priests told them specifically, do not read the Bible. Because you can't read it without damaging your spiritual walk. You need the church to tell you what the Word of God says. I can assure you, that's not what Peter meant. That's not what he's saying here whatsoever. It's a whole other 
point of conflict. But Peter, in fact, is not really addressing how we understand the Scriptures. This word interpretation is a very rare Greek word, and it's tough to translate. I'm not trying to work around it, but I'm just saying that how you hear interpretation is the same like you hear prophecy. We can go down a wrong track. So prophecy just means all of Scripture. And interpretation here is not talking about how you understand the Bible, but where the Bible comes from. It's not a private interpretation of here's what I think God thinks, here's where I think we should go, here's what I want to tell you to do. It's not that. It doesn't come from a private interpretation. So it's not talking about how to understand the Bible, but where it comes from. Scripture's meaning is not the case, is not the issue here, but its origination. What produces the written text of Holy Scripture? Scripture does not come from man, is what Peter's saying. It does not emit from a person's creative imagination or a person's intellect. Where does it come from? That's not where Scripture comes from. Where does it come from? Verse 21, for no prophecy, no text of Scripture, would include that, was ever produced by the will of man. For, you notice the word for there in verse 21. This explains the assertion of verse 20. No passage of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man. We need to know that. Remember, prophecy, not primarily prediction, But declaration of God's truth and sovereign will, God's word does not originate in the mind, the will, or the imagination of people. Men use their minds in compositional capacities, and yet, latter part of verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We enter here on holy ground. Notice that phrase again. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this lamp, this light that will guide our path to God until we meet Him in glory, this light does not come out of the mind of man. It's not produced by man, but it is rather the product of the Holy Spirit of God. This is not what some refer to as a dictation. There are religions that hold to that type of idea. That is not true of Christianity. We do not believe that God spoke from heaven and people wrote down everything they heard. That is not the case. But what we speak of is, as some have put it, a concursive operation. That is, an effort that combined the intense human effort with the superintending steerage of the Holy Spirit of God. Again there in verse 21 at the end, He carried them along. That word is so beautifully used in the New Testament of the wind in the sails of a ship. It pushes the ship along. It carries it to its destination. This is how the Holy Spirit moved in the minds of individuals using their creative capacities, using their faithfulness to Him, but carrying them along to say exactly what God wanted to say. In a manner paralleled by no other book, the Holy Scriptures speak the mind and the will of God, not the mind and the will of man. 
And of course, many scoff. Believe God wrote a book? Kind of a dumb idea. God writes books. Maybe he, maybe we write books because our Creator did. He didn't pen it with his hand. Whatever you want to do with the Ten Commandments, we'll leave that alone for the moment. He didn't, he didn't write it. But he worked through human beings to steer them and carry them along to write exactly what he wanted us to know. So it was generated by the Holy Spirit, and the Bible then stands without error. God cannot err. He cannot do wrong. He cannot lie. He cannot steer us the wrong way. Now, there are numerous Christian churches in our city who teach. Again, it's not that the people know this, but if you talk to the pastors very carefully, they teach that the Bible only becomes God's Word when it happens to move the individual. At that point of existential experience, the Bible becomes God's word to that person. This is a little dangerous because we all know that existential moment, right? You're reading the Bible and you say, how long has that been in there? I never saw that before. Really? Or we see something, words that we know have been there before, but we didn't get it. And it's like, I get it. It makes sense. We can be warmed in our heart. We can be convicted of sin. Great change can come as we hear the Word of God. And that doesn't happen every day. And so it's easy for us to say, oh, that's what's going on. At that moment, the Scriptures become the Word of God to me. What such churches will always avoid saying is that the Bible is the Word of God. But I think that's exactly what Peter's saying. And as we look, Lord willing, next week at the writings of the Apostle Paul, he will speak that way of all of Scripture. So we've worked in this journey through the Word of God from creation into the Pentateuch and particularly in Deuteronomy where following the Word of God was so vital to the conquest and God's purpose with Israel. And then we worked our way through the Old Testament prophets and their vision of the Word of God and how they taught about it. And then we looked at the teachings of Jesus as He spoke about the Word of God. And now we've come to the New Testament and here today, and Lord willing, next week, we look at the two most explicit statements about how the Word of God was produced. And we learn here what Peter is saying here is these words do not become the Word of God if they happen to turn your crank. They are the Word of God. Even when you find them boring, even when you find them confusing, they are the Word of God. This is an important concept in our day, especially for those accustomed to listening to their heart. To those who believe they hear the voice of the Holy Spirit telling them what to do. And sadly, many thinking that voice of the Spirit in my head is far more illuminating than the Bible. 
This is important. Remember, first of all, as we looked last week, to never separate word and spirit. We must also remember that God counsels us to know that our hearts are deceitful above all things. As he says in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, it's it's folly to follow your heart as the way to truth. Your heart will walk you right over a cliff. Do not listen to that voice in your head. Hear the word of the Lord. Read it. Know it, believe it, trust it, obey it. That's light. This is the lamp that shines in our dark worlds. Do not rely on your intuitions, but focus outside yourself on the revealed Word of God in Scripture. The gift to us is not the voice in our head. It's not the intuitions that we find. It's not the warm spirit at certain moments. The gift to us is this trust of God's written word. And so I would call us as a church, Eden Baptist, to revere this word, to honor this word, to know what it is, and to stand upon it when it cuts cross grain from everything you're hearing in this world. We have a lot to do to interpret it rightly, and we don't get it all right. We have a lot to learn, every one of us. But let's know that this trust has been given to us as a church to defend, to protect, and to live in its light. And that points us once again back to the two choices of life. Always these two tracks. Always the broad road and the narrow road, as Jesus put it. Always. There's track one. You can submit to the Scriptures as the external authoritative voice of God, the absolute truth, the final word, and stake your life and eternity on it. Track number two is you can stand all of your days in judgment over the word. Relying upon your reason, your will, to determine what you will believe is reasonable and what you will dismiss as unreasonable or unwelcome. And here's the danger of your heart if you're in that mode. The danger of your heart, the the deceptiveness that can go on there, is you can find the Bible unreliable because what's really at the depth of your concern is that there's some troubling truths some troubling realities that are there. I would just emphasize too, first, the gospel. That the eternal Son of God took on flesh, came to earth, died to pay the penalty of my sin, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, reigns today, and is coming again. That whole construct Maybe something you just really don't want to embrace. It just seems too fanciful. It's something you don't want to deal with. Or secondly, is that final accountability before Christ that Peter speaks of in chapter 3, that you will stand before Christ. It could be that it's the rejection of that concept that really leads you to question all kinds of little things in the Bible. But remember this, as you reject the truth of Scripture, 
Your reasoning against these truths is like a canoe launching an attack on a battleship. You may feel good about your paddle and how your canoe's doing. It's going to get crushed. And what is so pathetic is really not merely how little you are and how big God is, but that you charge God as untrustworthy. I stand in judgment upon His Word and say He's not trustworthy. If you question His Word, you question Him because He inspired it. He expired it. He carried its authors along to say exactly what He wants you to hear. And so abandon your canoe and come to trust in the battleship of God's Word, which is an analogy that falls infinitely short. But will you continue to trust yourself? Will you continue to trust what you believe is reasonable or the witness of men carried along by the Holy Spirit to reveal God's plan of salvation from the wrath to come? I would encourage you to come to His Word. Come to this light. Come to see it for what it is. And for those of us who have seen that Word, we sang today of that amazing grace that there is no condemnation. That's not because of our insights and our wisdom, but because of the pure grace of God to reveal to us, to illumine our eyes to the truth that this is His Word. All of it. That's grace. May we rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise for your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for this vision that you have shown to us. We pray that we would embrace this message of truth and that we would not merely think about it as an intellectual position to take, but that we would recognize this word is given to transform our lives to fill us with love for you and for others and to shine as light in this waking world as the return of Christ approaches and our accountability before your throne is pending. Lord, we thank you for finding us in our darkness and giving us this torch in the cave. I pray that we'd lift it high, that we'd trust it, that we'd not snuff it out or hide its light behind a shield but that we would let it shine we pray your hand of mercy upon us to that end as a church and individually that each one would right now in their heart of hearts ask what they're trusting what's the bedrock under our feet we thank you for the bedrock of your word and pray that it would open our eyes and teach us your truth and continue to sanctify your people. Through Christ we pray. Amen.